From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Trabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. To all you who know, celebrate. <laughs> Which I think is basically all of the country. The entire country. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think we've started to see... Cinco de Mayo celebrations going a little global, which is kind of interesting, right? Like, it makes a certain kind of sense here. I mean, it kind of doesn't make sense, but on the other hand, like, you know, our various drinking holidays are themselves kind of contrivances. So Cinco de Mayo is a fun one. Who doesn't like tequila and Mexican beer and stuff? I I sure do. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's also, it's like, kind of go all over. It's one of these things where, you know, these holidays in general, if brand, so, I mean, you know, we, we talked about this a lot. Many epi- in many episodes around Cinco de Mayo, when we when we always talk about Cinco de Mayo, you know, once a year on the pod. Um, but that you know, we wrote a big piece a long time ago, years ago now, about how sort of Corona created Cinco de Mayo in the U.S. But that it sort of came out of like these small celebrations that were happening in Los Angeles, and they just like ran with it. But I think when these sort of very specific drinking holidays happen and then become like massive. Obviously, brands love it, right? Because if not, you're all just competing for the same sort of general drinking holidays, right? Like everyone's everyone's trying to win hearts and minds for Fourth of July, right? Everyone's trying to win hearts and minds for like Thanksgiving and like Christmas, New Year's, right? And Valentine's, whatever. And it's like this is single to mind, like tequila and Mexican beer. Like this is ours. Back the fuck off, everybody yeah. else. Like you can try to come in, but actually, you're just gonna look like a poser loser. So <laughs> don't do that. I mean, and same with. St. Patrick's Day, right? Like that is Irish stouts, i.e. Guinness's holiday, and lots of Irish whiskey, i.e. Jameson, right? But they own those yeah. holidays. And and look, I think you know potentially there are other opportunities, you know, that will continue to co- to come about uh, throughout our history that I think you know may become bigger or smaller uh, at certain times for other brands. But like you know, this is sort of a this also single to Mayo is such a celebration of like everything that has to do with Mexico through the lens of like Americans, or I guess we could say like through the lens of like Taco Bell, right. Of, yeah. You know, hard shell tacos and uh, nachos and guacamole and just all that stuff that, you know, everyone in America really does love. I mean, it, it is the number one, uh, you know, is the Mexican food is the most popular cuisine in the U S and uh, so, yeah. so Cinco de Mayo makes a lot of sense. And so I thought we would use Cinco de Mayo as uh, a great peg for talking about tequila, as always. But talking about tequila, a, a, a sort of a riff I have on an amazing article we uh, ran this week by the incredibly talented writer Susanna Skipper Barton uh, that is all about sort of the battle for the soul of tequila between sort of additive free and additive laden, let's say tequila. And I think she makes a lot of really interesting points in that article. So I don't want to get into additive free versus additive in this conversation. What I would rather talk about, which I, what I also think is interesting is I think there's a second battle that's happening in tequila, which is similar, but slightly different. And I think that we are seeing a battle in tequila play out between, I think we're seeing very clearly, sorry, two core segments of tequila form that are both very popular and extremely different. And on one side, in one corner, let's say, right, we have what we can call celebrity tequila, 
But I don't just mean celebrity tequila, right? I think it's broader than that. It is any brand that is either owned by a celebrity or is authentically, and, and I'm, I really am, I think it's very important that that word be, um, you know, emphasized here, authentically consumed by the glitterati, right? So you have a category of not just Casamigos and 818, you know, Terramana, but also tequilas that have been found by high-end consumers that are celebs, right? So socialite, socialites. So 1942 is one of these. Um, Class Azul is another one of these, right? And then you have in that category the other brands that are chasing these brands, whether – and they're doing that in one of two ways, right? They're either brands that are – creating celebrity-esque tequila brands by like hiring a celebrity to sort of be a part of the brand, but like they're not an owner in an authentic way like Kendall Jenner is or The Rock is or George Clooney was. Forever you want to say about any of those three, they all do have actual ownership stake in the tequilas. Or they are brands that are going after the 1942s by trying to do partnerships and pay for brands to you know people to to drink these liquids at parties events etc and i think that what i want to get into is i think that that potentially may not be that effective in the long run then on the other end of the spectrum you have the tequilas for the high end the aficionados and the trade and I think that why I don't want to get into an additive-free versus additive conversation here is because I think especially for aficionados, there's a lot of people that like really nice tequilas that don't necessarily care if they're additives in them. They just care that they're good and they're not being drunk by that other group, right? And we see that yeah. a lot in wine and things like that as well, right? We've talked about this before that there's lots of wines that like the trade don't like that a lot of people who drink them would think, you know, who drink them still consider themselves high-end wine consumers, right? And so the in, in this camp, right, you can put the Fortalezas, obviously, and the Don Fuilanos, uh, you know, et cetera, but I think you also have the opportunity for there to be other heritage brands. So brands that can kind of connect themselves to the actual heritage of Mexico and don't feel like they need celebrities in order to do that. Um, one of the brands I think that's the most interesting here, because it kind of sits in both camps, and it's, I'm curious to see where it goes, is... Don Julio, because while they have 1942, it's really their only celebrity product. Everything else that's in the Don Julio portfolio is kind of that like classic heritage-based tequila. We know that trade have feelings about Don Julio, right? But if you look at the history of the brand, it is still the most consumed premium tequila in Mexico by Mexicans. So they have that like heritage and history that they can use to then, you know, push to a, an American consumer that wants to feel like they're in the know, right? Oh, well, I, I, drink the, I drink the quality tequila that Mexicans drink, right? So I think that, that, that they're an interesting brand. So, you know, I, I think this, this battle is going to continue to play out. And, um, you know, I think initially the, the, biggest, the biggest thing I see here that, that's going to happen is like we're just going to continue to have sort of the, the vodkaization of tequila, Right where tequila is going to continue to be this product where you're going to have the glitterati come in on one side and the trade and high-end consumer, or not high-end consumer, but 
you know, quote unquote informed or aficionado consumer or whatever on the other. Does this sort of track – does this track with you, Zach? Do you think that this is a, a fair uh, battle to say I see forming? Yeah. I mean I think what's really interesting to me in within this battle too is that there's a challenge potentially facing tequila that vodka never really had to fight. And it's that even within each of these sort of circles that you've described, it's unclear to me at this point what style of tequila is ascendant. Because like you yeah. talk about 1942, and 1942 is bordering on an extra Añejo style tequila, right? It's like two and a half years in barrel. It's definitely in that style. But some of the other really popular bottlings are not aged expressions. And tequila has this really interesting sort of duality to it of what is challenging, I think, about, well, among many things that is challenging about tequila production from a brand standpoint is kind of understanding where the market will go. And I think tequila has, over the last however many years, looked at, on the very high end, its growth opportunity mostly in the aged expressions because the the sort of high-end money, whether it's been sort of glitterati, club money, or mm-hmm. just collector aficionado money has all been, you know, kind of brown spirits, aged spirits, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And yet to make the argument that you're talking about, the argument that the perhaps the trade in the aficionados would resonate with more, I think there is more momentum on the Blanco silver unaged side as being yes. more reflective of a sense of place of being more true to tequila's origins and of perhaps being you know the sort of more elevated expression of agave and i think mezcal's growth is a big part of that too right while there are people making aged mezcal it hasn't really caught on in the same way because mezcal is seen as being this spirit that is very connected to the method of production the species of agave used in some cases the place where it's made and and not kind of than barrel aging that generally. And so it's not just that brands are perhaps having to align themselves in one or two of these camps to move high-end product. Mm -hmm. It's also that even within a brand, I think, and even within a distillery, perhaps, you are faced with a challenge of like, okay, well, we know there's this market of consumers that we want to reach, or these two markets of consumers that we want to reach, but how, what product is it that will carry the day? Because I think the other big piece of this that's hard for me to, to parse, and I, I want to kind of talk through it with you, is we've talked a lot about tequila's explosive growth being driven by a lot of things, but one of them is the earned or unearned health halo that surrounds tequila. But that health halo kind of doesn't make a lot of sense when you're talking about barrel-aged spirit, right? right? Like the idea of tequila as this kind of pure, natural expression of agave and that somehow being better for you than other kinds of spirits, when you're then barreling it for years on end... I, I don't really know how you, I mean, people can convince themselves of anything. We are, uh, we all contain multitudes, but, but from a sort of clean and logical perspective, it doesn't really make sense to talk about non-silver tequila as being, you know, sort of this like cleaner, easier to drink, less, uh, with fewer repercussions the next day, the way that people do talk about Blanco tequila. So you kind of end up in this weird space where the the standard way for these producers to introduce additional value to create these prestige bottles has been to barrel age them because that's kind of what the spirits industry knows how to do generally. And yet I'm not convinced that that works. I mean, I think we've seen that some of the 1942 imitators have kind of come at the king and missed. Mm-hmm. And I'm clear whether that's just because they don't have that same heritage that same tradition or just because 
they have miscalculated the market. I don't know. I kind of was all over the place there. I apologize, Adam. Can you pick up those pieces yeah. in some sense and, I, and let me know what you think? I think, I think, yeah. I think what you're saying, which is sort of, you know, the conversation we've been having in here is that I think the tequila growth is coming from two places. And I think mm-hmm. that ultimately where, you know, the, the why I didn't want to talk about additives as the the defining schism and why I wanted to talk about you know, celebrity or you know, star fucker tequila or whatever you want to say versus, <laughs> um, and, and I don't mean that negatively. I just mean that that is what it is, right? It is a category that has, it's been really interesting to me. I've, I've gotten to talk to a lot of um, top executives in spirits and especially a lot of uh, top executives in spirits who are specialists in another spirit that used to dominate the clubs. Uh, it's Brown and from France. And they have all admitted that like, they have lost the ground war to tequila at this point in the club, right? Like, but it's a certain kind of tequila. So there's that tequila. And then we have the tequila of people who drink tequila because they think they're smart, right? They're drinking tequila because Mm -hmm. of all of the sort of things we're talking about that it's this, it's a more natural product or it's the connection to Mexico or, you know, all the other reasons that, Mexico is also one of the hottest vacation destinations. It's the most popular food in the country. All that stuff are why they're drinking tequila. I think in both those groups, the majority of those people don't really care too much or are not doing much research on how it's actually made, what's in it, uh, and how how the different variants actually have different impacts on their body, right? So mm-hmm. that's where I think like, the health halo benefits both groups because they don't actually they just they just think tequila is better for them they don't realize that like well mm-hmm. once it starts getting aged in wood and all this stuff happens to it like it actually is a lot harder for your body to break down you're more likely to have a hangover like that's not anything they're thinking about they heard someone told them a long time ago that tequila is good for you or better for you than other drinks and that's all they're going with in the same way that like i'm a lot of this population probably also smokes weed <laughs> and has been told that weed is better for you than other drugs we don't really know what other drugs that statement was originally made in relation to. Like, is it better for you than heroin? Sure. Like, is it better for you than Tylenol? I don't know. <laughs> like, that's yeah. – we haven't done enough studies, right? But, like, that's what they've heard. And so that becomes, like, the mantra. Like, this is why I only smoke weed now. And so that's why I think ultimately tequila is growing in both in both segments. But I think the groups are really different in that, you know, they they really do see – the category differently and these are really truly separate categories for them like the group that drinks tequila because they want to be appreciative of tequila and they want to have this connection to mexico like they don't want to touch the tequilas that have anything to do with celebrity or spokespeople or anything like that they're not interested in those things they're interested in tequilas that they feel like they discover you know whether they discover them on a trip to mexico etc they don't want those brands to have any celebrity component to them whatsoever or sort of star fucker mm-hmm. mentality. Then the, the star tequila is like, they're all about that. It's why, you know, Tara Monet's going to do, did a million cases last year and is going to do 2 million cases by the end of this month in its entire history. That's fucking insane. Right. So there's a whole yeah. other group of people that love to follow these celebrities that are authentically connected to these, these tequilas, but those tequilas are never going to cross over. Right or not that much, right? The trade is not go. Will begrudgingly carry those tequilas, but those will not be tequilas that they 
have or that the aficionados have. And so I think you're, you're kind of getting two really interesting category of spirits. And it's really different than like, you know, the sort of 70s and 80s in bourbon where like everybody was like people are drinking lighter, you know, our lighter spirits. We need to lighten it up. And everybody did. Right here, yeah. tequila brands are really able to make a choice. Like I'm either going to choose to be in camp A, which is like celeb tequila, or I'm going to choose to be in camp B. And they also know what that choice means. They know that that means they can't cross to the other camp. Right? Like if you yeah. if you're a brand that decides you're going to have you're you're going to sponsor major celebrity parties and you're going to have DJs as your spokespeople, etc., it is very hard for you to ever then be a brand that anyone in the sort of you know, aficionado camp cares about and vice versa, right? If you're an aficionado brand, you don't want that to be a brand that people in camp a who are all about celebrity and star power, et cetera, care about. And I think that in both, but what I think is so interesting is that I think in both, there is going to be opportunity for super premium all the way to the low end. And what I'm really interested to see is where that Krug of tequila comes from in the aficionado camp, especially. Because there are yeah. going to be, I think, ultimately high-end tequilas in the camp for trade and aficionados. And that we haven't seen yet. Because the only model that people seem to think about when they think about super premium tequila right now is following the blueprint of model A. Which is get a celebrity endorser, go into the clubs, etc. But tequila is so yeah. popular that like it is going to come in model B too. Did I even answer your question? <laughs> or or did, uh, well, I, did I respond to some of your statements? I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's like I said, what's fascinating to me about this conversation is that there is so much there's so much going on in tequila. And to add a bit of complexity here, because why not? It's already a complex enough topic. You also have this ongoing reality with tequila, which is that production or scaling for demand is really tough for a product like tequila. You know, we, we talk, we've talked a lot about how like bourbon as an industry has struggled to meet demand and has had to do, you know, the bourbon industry as a whole has had to do a lot of different things to meet the growing demand for bourbon, you know, building new production facilities, um, you know, kind of taking on the mantle of, of kind of just producing more. And because bourbon has a sort of a time element to it, you can't just flip a switch that says more bourbon and have it available, you know, in two weeks or whatever. And tequila has, an, I think, even harder time scaling because it's so constrained by the realities of what growing agave is. It's a multi-year, you know, half-decade-long process before you get to a point where the agave is able to be harvested and turned into tequila. And I think that one of the really big and interesting sort of challenges and potential, I guess, uh, points for differentiation might be in these camps is... You know, with the Starfucker tequilas, I don't think, as you said, you know, maybe neither camp is super concerned about additives, but I do think the aficionado camp is concerned about, you know, 100% de agave tequila. So not, you know, using other sugar sources. They're probably a little more interested in some degree of assurance of quality, if not sustainability. And I think that where you see potential might be with the tequila brands, the tequila distilleries that perhaps have their own agave plantations that have more control over yield and quality and not kind of rushing the harvest to get product on the market. And, you know, I think about how 
at least in the case of bourbon, it's not as if there's a corn shortage in the United States, right? right? It's not hard to get corn. It's not hard to get barley or get wheat. So, so the raw materials are readily available to be purchased, in, especially for a high value product like bourbon. In Mexico, I don't, in you know, in the tequila region, I'm not sure there's just like a bunch of extra agave floating around. In fact, I know absolutely there is not. And that shortages are already an issue. And as tequila continues to become more popular, not just in the US, but globally, there will be this inc- increased pressure to uh, either you know, cut your tequila or to, you know, use other sugar sources besides agave to produce your tequila, to harvest your agave younger. And that the point of differentiation in the same way that Krug and maybe some other high-end champagnes became a bulwark against more volume-centric champagne production, even if Krug is not exactly a small production Mm -hmm. itself, I think that there's a way in which some of these brands might themselves be positioned to be a bulwark against that, you know, kind of very rapacious kind of all like, you know, get it on the market now, because I think the other part with the celebrity tequilas and stuff like that is you have to sort of strike while the iron is hot. There's no guaranteeing that what's trendy and popular either as an individual spirit or, or even as a category will be so in five or 10 years, but that's what tequila producers have to think. That's the time span they have to think in the same way that, you know, even if they're making Blanco, the same way that whiskey producers have to think 5, 10, 15 years in the future because you have to barrel the product for that long in many cases, you don't have the luxury of saying like, okay, well, we're just going to make a lot now. And then when demand slackens, we can just stop the cut production. It's like, well, if you plant a bunch more agave with the idea of harvesting in five years and then five years from now, everyone has moved on to Cavados, which will not happen. That's just a joke, folks. There's, you're kind of left holding the proverbial bag. And so, I think the battle for agave, the battle for where the where the the plants in the ground now goes, what kinds of tequila it goes into, is a really fascinating thing to watch because, you know, the the money in a lot of ways is probably on the side of the celebrity tequilas, mm-hmm. but I don't know if the long term health of the tequila industry can afford for so much production to be sent in down that pipeline because I'm not convinced it will last. Well, I so I think you just hit the nail right on the head and like you said something that I thought we'd get to towards the very end of this podcast, which maybe we are towards the end, but (laughs) I think that ultimately, so first, uh, you know, to address the, the, the point of bourbon and Susanna talked about this in her piece too, like all these other areas of spirits, there's this same, there is a division, right? Whether it's mass market brand versus small brand or, whether it's, again, celebrity endorsed versus, you know, and you see this in other areas of culture as well, right? Like, you know, mass market fashion, high-end fashion versus understated high-end fashion, right? Like, I, I love that sort of quote from the the first, the second episode of Succession where Tom pulls Greg aside in, in this, year, this year's season and makes fun of the date he brings to Logan's wake where he basically says, you know, She's carrying a Burberry bag like, you know, that that's pathetic. What a loser. You know, basically like it's 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 gauche in a way. Right. Because mm-hmm. they all don't carry those like big, very well known brands. That's not cool. It's not cool to be like a. it's not cool to carry Gucci. It's cool to carry a brand or be dressed by someone that you if you know, you know. And I think ultimately What's going to happen in tequila is we're going to have 
the growth brands or the longevity growth brands be the brands on the other side who really focus on telling the story of the craft and the people who fast follow like celebrities fall out of favor. Right. And that means those brands fall out of favor. And so that's like, I almost feel like the point a, the like super premium, like luxury celebrity tequila that's right now, everyone wants to have one and they all kind of, are. They all kind of look the same in a lot of ways and have the same kind of messaging. Like it's like the cocaine, right? It's gonna it's a fast high, you're gonna make a lot of money, <laughs> but I don't see it being a long term brand that people feel really loyal to and like in you know, the next generation says, Oh, you know, my my parents drank this tequila and like I wanna drink this tequila and I think that on the other side, you have that opportunity. You have brands that have already been in the market for a very long time that if the potentially will continue to do that, that's again why I don't have the answer, but I think that Don Julio could be so fascinating because they kind of are doing both right now. Um, but you know, you have yeah. you have all these other brands, these great brands that if they can, cont- you know, if they just keep telling that story about how they make the product, etc., the consumer doesn't really the consumer doesn't really understand additives. So the additive conversation doesn't even need to be there, right? Because additives actually are being used in almost every area of alcohol anyways, right? People are adding things to these liquids. So this idea that like all tequila is, is water and agave and then the yeast and this distillation, like that's really cool. And I definitely, those are the tequilas I definitely want to drink, but the majority, like the average consumer, they get a little confused. So they don't, they don't really care. They just want to know like, what's your process? I actually think that it's more Mm -hmm. likely that there's going to be a big, that, that like the thing the consumer will understand is See all those uh, celebrity tequilas? Those are all made with diffusers. What's a diffuser? Well, a diffuser is a machine that cheaply extracts the agave using steam and is able to use cheaper, lesser quality agave. That's what a diffuser is. These these all mm-hmm. use the, the method of the Tahona with the horse, et cetera. That actually, I think, is a much easier division for consumers to get. They can also go and see the two processes, right? Like, yeah. no one sees someone like, you know, very you in know, a lab add, coat, right? In adding, a lab coat, yeah. adding <laughs> adding the vanilla flavor or the oak, you know, or the or a little bit more sugar or things like that. No one sees that, but they can see in the pictures, etc. A Tahona process or a diffuser, and yeah, that I think is what people are gonna gonna sort of gravitate towards in the long run is these tequilas that are made in a more artisanal way, um, and that's why I think that like we're going to see in the next few years some brands that start to position themselves as the premium versions of that as the really, and like, look, yeah. Don Fuilano just came to the office um, today. Like we got some samples sent in and I was looking at those bottles and I was like, huh, there's an option for this brand. Like you just look at how beautiful the bottle is and the top and stuff. And like, it already looks super premium, but, but premium in a different way than like the celebrity baller tequila bottles look right now. Like maybe it's that, um, I think there's a few other brands out there that have an opportunity to be in this position, but I I do I agree with you. I think that's going to be where ultimately, like in ten years, when there's this great shakeout, we see the majority of tequila being. And then I think there'll be maybe one or two celebrity brands that are around. But I think that at that point, the consumer will basically have forgotten that a celebrity is even attached to it. And yeah, I mean that's kind of what Casamigos has done. Right? Yeah, and that was going to be my my hypothesis. Is it'll be Casamigos because I I also think that Casamigos is very uh, this is my other hot take I think they are very strategically positioning themselves as the Tito's of tequila if that makes sense yeah they're the one brand that people know at this point which is wild because 
you would think that there are certainly other tequila brands that are widely ordered, but I was literally, I was not, this is not a, one of those like made up anecdotes. I was literally at a, uh, a bar the other night uh, after an event and was sitting there and at the bar and this, these two people came up and they were like, asked for tequila and soda. And the bartender was like, what tequila? And there's like, Oh, of course, Casamigos. And I was like, okay. I mean, yeah. like, you know, I mean, that, I don't know if that's the choice I would make personally, but like they were, it was almost like, well, we said we wanted tequila, didn't we? And like, that was an interesting, you know, insight into how they, that brand is positioned. I think it's because people have, people have connected Casamigos with like, it's Casamigos is a brilliant brand because it's not as expensive as the super premium tequilas, but it has a premium feel to it because it comes from Hollywood royalty so, like, even yeah. if now you forget who the Hollywood royalty was, you forget it was Clooney, you forget it was Randy Gerber, whatever, you still know there's something that makes it cool. But because it's a little bit cheaper, you feel smarter ordering it than your friends that always order, you know, Classe Azul, right? And the flavor profile is very approachable because, as we know, it has that, like, very vanilla forward flavor profile, and it and it's a name you can remember. Like I just think again, it feels like it's this I don't know authentic product, but it's not for, for all the other reasons we know that it's kind of kind of is kind of isn't right. It's 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 exactly what Tito's did in a lot of ways, and I think that they've executed that brand very well. Um, and yeah, I think that that will be the brand that kind of maybe even shakes out on that side. And this side is waiting, you know. Like I, I I'm really curious to see like what. Patron does in the future on the like authenticity side because they've you know they've been really trying to lean in recently and I think pretty effectively to the messaging around how everything they do is you know still the old method Tahona etc. I am curious what happens with Don Julio because they are the number one luxury tequila in Mexico drunk by Mexicans. I'm talking about like the core range of Don Julio, right? Like yeah. You know, there's there's a few other like historic brands as well. Those also will be interesting to see what happens. Maybe, maybe they stay just because they're so big, um, and they're they're able to play around a little bit on the celebrity side, but still stay also authentic. But I think the pure pure celebrity stuff, I don't know, man. It's yeah, you're right. It's gonna be a flash, but but the division the division's coming, and uh, I think we're gonna see more and more people launching tequilas that are either for one or the other in the next few years. Right? You're either launching it going after trade and aficionados, and you don't give a shit about the the sort of club kids or you're going purely after the club kids and then if that's the case the aficionado trade don't want to hear from you at all yeah well happy to go to mayo i'm gonna have some tequila <laughs> yeah enjoy it I, i'm gonna get my tequila in here a little bit myself hope everyone has a great weekend enjoy the derby tomorrow too it's like this is like one of the greatest weekends guys we're like kicking off the summer season hopefully it's ready to go let's do it enjoy your mint juleps on saturday Zach. Yeah, Margs and Demint Juleps, like yeah. back to back. That's a, that's a weekend right there. M&M's, Margs and Mint Juleps. <laughs> and uh, Zach, I'll see you Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... 
The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.